Good morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis, chapter 1. We begin a new series today. The story of the Bible in only 16 verses. We're going to save you all a lot of time, right? And if you did not get the handout today, it will be really helpful if you, if you have it. So if you need one, just raise your hand. Cynthia's right here. She's got those for you. As we turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1 verse 31. Genesis 1 verse 31 says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Let's pray together. Father, Today we recognize, as your word says, that you are the Lord, our maker. And you uphold the universe by the word of your power. And as we slept last night, you are the one who kept us breathing. You kept our heart beating. You woke us up this morning. And while we were asleep, you held the planets in their orbit around the sun that you allowed to continue to burn and give light. And to that, we humble ourselves and we bow down and we kneel before you, the Lord, our maker. Teach us today what it means that you are our creator, that we are your creatures. And I pray that we would walk away this morning truly saying in our hearts, Lord, how great thou art. So elevate our hearts, help us to see Christ, help us to see your glory in creation and to see you as our creator and as our king and as our father. Speak to us from your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Have you ever heard of Larry Lawnchair? You may have heard of this guy. His name was Larry Walters, this is a true story. Years ago, Larry's boyhood dream was to fly. He always wanted to fly. And so when he graduated from high school, he joined the Air Force with hopes of becoming a pilot. Unfortunately, poor eyesight disqualified him from the Air Force. And when he was finally discharged, he had to satisfy himself with watching jets fly over his backyard. One day, Larry had a bright idea. He decided he was going to fly. So he went to a local store and purchased 45 weather balloons and several tanks of helium. The weather balloons, when fully inflated, measured more than four feet across on each balloon. Back home, Larry securely strapped the balloons to his sturdy lawn chair, which he had anchored to the bumper of his Jeep. He then inflated the balloons with helium and climbed into the chair for a test while it was still only a few feet above the ground. 
Satisfied that it would work, Larry packed several sandwiches and drinks and loaded his pellet gun, figuring he could pop a few balloons when it was time to descend. So he tied himself to the lawn chair along with his pellet gun and provisions. And Larry's plan was to lazily float up to a height of about 30 feet above his backyard after severing the anchor and after a few hours he would come back down. But things didn't quite work out that way. When he cut the cord that anchored the lawn chair to his Jeep, Larry did not float lazily up to 30 feet. Instead, he streaked into the L.A. sky as if shot from a cannon. He did not level off at 30 feet, nor did he level off at 100 feet. After climbing and climbing, he leveled off at approximately 16,000 feet in the air. Can you imagine being in a lawn chair at 16,000 feet in the air? Now, at that height, he could not risk shooting any of the balloons lest he unbalance the load and really find himself in trouble. As if being in a lawn chair at 16,000 feet is not trouble enough. So he stayed there, drifting cold and frightened for many hours. And then he got in real trouble. He found himself drifting into the primary approach quarter of Long Beach International Airport. Larry was first spotted by a United Airlines pilot. He radioed the tower and described passing a guy in a lawn chair with a gun. (laughs) It's a true story. Meanwhile, feeling cold and dizzy in the thin air three miles above the ground, Larry began to shoot several of the balloons with a pellet gun to come back down to earth. He attempted to aim his descent at a large expanse of grass on the North Long Beach Country Club. But Larry came up short and ended up entangling his tethers in a set of high-voltage power lines about 10 miles from his liftoff site. The plastic tethers protected Larry from electrocution as he dangled above the ground until firemen and utility crews could cut the power to the lines. Larry managed to maneuver his chair over to a wall, step out, and cut the chair free. He was later quoted as saying, a guy just can't sit around. Sometimes I feel like Larry, if I can be honest with you. What we're going to do today, for the next 16 weeks, is we're going to go up pretty high. And we're going to get an overview of the Bible and about what it reveals about God and ultimately about our Savior, Jesus Christ. What we're going to do is instead of getting into the details of Scripture, we're going to go up higher than Larry, 30,000 feet from a a blimp or a lawn chair view and look down at the Bible and see what is the big story of the Bible. We're going to look at the forest rather than focusing in on the trees. When I was in seminary, one of the first books that we ever had to read in seminary was a book called According to Plan by Graham Goldsworthy. And it told the big story of the Bible. And for the first time in my life, I was confronted with what was called biblical theology. Biblical theology looks at the story of the Bible and the big picture. Now, when I finished reading this book, I literally said this out loud. I said, this needs to be preached in the church. Because a lot of times, if you're like me, you grew up in the church and you heard stories 
and you read the Bible, and you read all of these individual stories, and you had no idea how to put all of those stories together. You, we know that the Bible is primarily about Jesus, but what do you do in Judges 19 through 21 with the concubine who gets cut into 12 pieces and mailed to the 12 tribes of Israel, and then a civil war starts, and the tribe of Benjamin is almost annihilated from the earth? How do you put that into the story of God's redemptive history? Where does Samson and Delilah fit in? Where does Rahab the prostitute fit in? How does Joshua and the battle of Jericho or David and Goliath fit in with God's big picture of redemptive history? In order to understand that, we need to know biblical theology. And it was that book that led me to a desire to be a pastor. I said, this is something that the church needs to know. This is something that needs to be preached. And I said this, if I ever become a pastor, I'm going to preach biblical theology and teach my people the big story of the Bible. And so here we are. Now, I didn't get you Graham Goldsworthy's book because it's a little more academic. Instead, we're at the pastor's conference in Minnesota back in February, and I found that little book on the back table, uh, Bruno's book, the story of the Bible in 16 verses. And it's accessible, it's good, it's easy. If you haven't read it yet, it's great. It takes you five minutes to read one chapter. And I said, this is the book for us. And so we're not going to be preaching from that book. We're going to be preaching from the Bible. That book is going to be supplemental. It's going to be kind of the overview to kind of help us understand the big story. And I promise you, if you understand biblical theology, if you understand the big story of the Bible, it's going to help you interpret every single story in the Bible. If you know what the forest looks like, it will help you understand the trees better. And so we begin with this question. Before we get into this text, we need to answer the question. Two questions. One, what is biblical theology? And the second question, why is biblical theology important? First question, what is biblical theology? Basically, biblical theology is the study of the doctrines of the Bible but they are arranged according to their chronology and historical background. So there's two big ways to understand theology. Uh, there's lots of ways, but two main ways. Systematic theology and biblical theology. Both of those are good. Both of those are helpful. Both of those have their places. Um, some of you may own Wayne Grudem's book on systematic theology. It's kind of a go-to. It's thicker than the Bible itself. But systematic theology categorizes doctrine according to specific topics. That's what systematic theology is about. So you would, you would ask the question, what does the Bible say about angels? Or what does the Bible say about creation? What does the Bible say about salvation? What does the Bible say about Jesus? And systematic theology will tell you everywhere in scripture and tell you exactly everything you need to know about angels or demons or heaven or suffering or any topic you want. It's all there systematized and, and gives you all of the information. Now that's helpful. Now biblical theology is different. Biblical theology shows the unfolding of God's revelation as it progressed through history. That's different. Okay? So biblical theology helps us to see the Bible as a unified whole. Rather than as a collection of unrelated doctrinal points. Okay? And so 
Uh, let, me give, let me explain this a little further in answering the question, why is biblical theology important? Because you may be sitting here wondering, why do we need to study this book? Why can't we just study the Bible? Well, we are studying the Bible, but we need a framework. Okay? So why is biblical theology important? The first reason is that biblical theology helps us know which biblical themes and truths are really important. It helps us understand what are the really important themes of the Bible. And why are they important? So as we seek to understand how the scripture naturally unfolds, how are its themes developed and how does it grow, we start to realize what's truly being emphasized. So if we, true, if we only re- relied on systematic theology alone, we might come to know many truths about angels and men and sin and redemption. But which of those are most important? Which of those are most emphasized and developed in the history of special revelation? So let me ask you this. Is it really as important to know about cherubim and seraphim as it is to know about justification and redemption? You see what I mean? Like you can have a lot of knowledge. You may know everything about angels and demons and spiritual warfare. But is that really what the Bible emphasizes as the most important doctrines? So it helps us know what's really important. The second reason biblical theology is important is it shows us the big picture and it helps us make sense of the whole Bible. Biblical theology helps us make sense of the whole Bible. It gives us the big picture. It shows us how the Bible coexists and coheres and relates to each other. All right, so the Bible was not given out to us as a textbook or a handbook of various truths and doctrines, but It's actually this big epic story in which all truths exist to portray the glory of one great hero. A hero who was promised, who was foreshadowed and prepared for in the Old Testament and finally has come to accomplish his magnificent, many-faceted work in the New Testament. And guys, systematic theology just doesn't get that done. Systematic theology doesn't give us that epic of history. It doesn't give us this Christ-centered sense of the Bible as one unified whole. Third, biblical theology is important because it helps us interpret the Bible rightly. It helps us interpret the Bible rightly. Guys, we want to understand the Bible the way it was meant to be understood, right? And so, biblical theology can be helpful in demanding application of rigorous, what's called, this is big words, but historical, grammatical, hermeneutic. Uh, When you do exegesis, when you bring out the meaning of the text, when you interpret the Bible, we need to interpret the Bible as it was meant to be interpreted, right? So if I were to, an example of this, and I don't want to get into this too much, but if, if I were to told you on the front page of the newspaper that it says that the um, I'm trying to think of an example here. The, uh, the tigers destroy the Indians. And I were to ask you, what is that about? Well, it could be that it could be the sports page, right? And, and the Detroit Tigers beat the Cleveland Indians in baseball, destroyed them, Right? But it could also be an international newspaper 
that says that there were some Bengal tigers that got loose in the country of India and many Indians were killed as a result of these tigers getting put on the loose. See what I mean? So you can't just look at it and say, well, this is what it means. No, you get to read it in context and understand the, the whole. Does that make sense? Okay, so when we read the Bible, we need to understand what does it mean then. So here's just a, and this isn't in your notes, but this is just a good principle for interpreting the Bible. The Bible can never mean what it never meant. Let me say that again. The Bible can never mean what it never meant. So if we, under, if we interpret the Bible uh, and we come up with something that the original readers would never have understood, then we have not read the Bible rightly. And so what biblical theology does is it helps us put it in the, in the context of history, redemptive history. It puts us in the context of Scripture. Uh, why is this book of the Bible important? How does it fit into the rest of Scripture? Why is creation important? Why is, why is Judges important to the story of the Bible? Why is the book of Joshua important? Why is Exodus important? Why is Matthew important? Why is Jude important? Why are these books important? Where do they fit in? And so what it does is it prevents us from proof texting. It prevents us from taking snippets of Scripture and pulling it out and saying, here's what I think this means... And not really letting the Bible speak for itself. Okay? So that's why biblical theology is important. So let's begin here in Genesis. Chapter 1. If you were to write the chapter of the Bible, if you were to sum it up in just a few chapters, where would you begin? You would begin like every good story, right? In the beginning. And that's where this story begins. In the beginning, Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Psalm 19.1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. If you're reading our, our book that we're, that we're going to be studying in our radical life groups, Chris Bruno makes this statement. He says, our view of the world begins with our view of God. The way we think about God shapes the way that we think about everything else along with the way that we act and respond to every circumstance. So the book of Genesis is foundational to our understanding of why we exist, who God is, how we, how we interpret nature, how we look at the world, our worldview. Everything is determined on this foundation of creation. And so don't miss, and, and we're going to be studying through the book of Genesis after we finish this. Our next big book of the Bible we're going to study through is Genesis. So we're not going to preach everything. The goal of this is not to, to give you everything in Genesis right now. The point of this is to look at the big picture. And what I don't want you to miss early on in Genesis chapter 1 is how radically God-centered the first chapter of the Bible is. The Bible does not begin with man. It all begins with God. In the beginning, God. And God's existence is assumed. God does not tell us where he came from. He does not tell us how he began or where he came from. He has no beginning. He has no end. It doesn't tell us why he created the world. Or, or it doesn't tell us why he exists or how he came to be or what it was like. Or, or where dinosaurs came from. The Bible does not seek to answer all of our questions. It seeks to answer the important questions. And Genesis tells us the questions that we should be asking. Right? But look how radically God-centered. If you're looking at Genesis chapter 1, I just want you can just go down the line of your Bible and see how many times it starts with, and God. 
Verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 3, and God said, let there be light. Verse 6, and God said, let there be an expanse. In verse 9, God said. Verse 8, God called. In verse 11, God said. In verse 12, the earth brought brought forth fruit, and God saw that it was good. Verse 14, God said, let there be lights in the expanse. Verse 16, God made the two great lights. Verse 17, God set them in the expanse to rule over the day and saw that it was good. Verse 20, God said. Verse 21, God created. Verse 22, God blessed. Verse 24, God said. Verse 25, God made. Verse 26, God said. You see how this is all about the work of God. It's all about what God is doing and how radically God-centered the first chapter is. And so, after previously affirming on six occasions in Genesis chapter 1 that particular aspects of creation were all good, God saw that it was good, it was good, it was good, we get to verse 31. And now, after he has created man and woman, verse 31 says, God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was, what's the word? Very good. He doesn't just say that it's good. He says it's very good. And notice that in verse 31 it says, Behold, it was very good. Don't read this too fast. Verse 31, God saw everything that he made and behold, it was very good. That word behold is an invitation to the reader. Hey, come up here with God and look at what God has made. It's an invitation to step back and observe everything that God has made. Behold, hey, look at what God has made and see that it is very, very good. Good. Look at creation from God's vantage point. And while many things do not appear to be good in our present day world, have y'all looked around lately, right? There's a lot of things that are not good. It was not so at the beginning. Genesis goes on to explain why things have changed, indicating that no blame should be attributed to God. Everything he created was very good. And so this answers to God's purpose. It expresses His overflowing goodness. God is good. And everything He made was very good. That means it was, it was working according to the way God intended it. And that's a good thing. Right? It's a good thing that the planet stayed in orbit last night while we slept. Right? It's a good thing that the earth is tilted on its axis at the exact point that it can sustain life. It's a good thing that the earth is positioned away from the sun in the exact location so that life is sustainable. It's a good thing that God gave the sun to give off light. It's a good thing that water comes down from the sky and rains down and plants grow so that we can eat food. It's a good thing that God didn't put your nose upside down so that every time it rains or you go swimming you drown, right? It's a good thing he didn't flip that thing up the other way. It's a good thing. Everything in creation, it's good. It's working the way that it should. And so, despite the invasion of sin in chapter 3, the material creation retains its goodness, as we'll see later. All right? So, what do we, what do we see here? What, what, is, what do we need to know here about creation in this story? What is God doing? There's two things. We see the nature of creation... And then we see the nature of the creator. Okay, So let's look at the nature of creation. Notice that creation is fashioned by the word of God. God speaks in order to create. We're told in John chapter 1 verse 1 that in the beginning was the word. 
And this word was Christ. And we don't want to jump to Christ too soon here. We want to stick with the text here. We're going to get to Jesus soon in in a little while, all right? But let's deal with, in the beginning was the word. It was the creative power of the word of God that created. Creation by God's word shows that God has chosen to relate all things by his word. So the supremacy of the word of God in the world goes back to creation. All creatures must bow to his word. Get this. Have you thought about this, that the same word, when you, when, you, when you think about the word of God created the heavens and the earth and everything that's in it, how much importance then should we place on the words in scripture when it says the word of the Lord came to his people? Or the fact that we today have the word of God. You realize that the word of God we have here contains the same power that created the universe. We should take the Word of God seriously. We don't want to trample over the Word. We want to understand the Word rightly. God's given us His Word, and it's that same Word that when He spoke, He created everything that exists, both visible and invisible. I had to stop and think about that for a minute. How do I treat God's Word? How do I treat his, the words that he's given me? Because it's those same words that spoke into creation and created all things. This is the importance of the word and everything relates to the word. The creation of the world by God's word later lays the foundation of the law. When God gives his word to his people, right? If God made human beings as his image to represent him on earth, how foolish would it be to make an image of God? If God himself set aside one day for rest, the Sabbath, and sanctifies it, should not God's people who were seeking to please him observe that one special day as well? We're imitating God in the way that he created the world. In numerous ways, the law finds its rationale in creation. Alan Ross, my professor of Old Testament and Hebrew, wrote this. He says, this idea is strengthened by the fact that God created by his powerful and authoritative Word. So later when Israel received the word of the Lord, they knew it was that creative word. Should they not obey this powerful word as all creation had? Could they not trust this word, the same word that created all things? Can they not trust God's word as he gives it to them in the law? And so the word of God is foundational for creation that God speaks And there's power in his word. There's authority in his word. And we'll talk about that more in a moment. So the nature of creation, it's fashioned by the word of God. But creation is also sustained by the power of God. It's sustained by the power of God. This comes from Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. This is a powerful verse. It's speaking of Jesus and it says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature... And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Let that sink in for a minute. That the universe is upheld by the word of his power. Colossians 1 verse 17 says, In him all things hold together. I remember I was watching one of those old reruns of one of Billy Graham's sermons. And I can't speak like Billy Graham did. um, But Billy Graham was preaching and he says, When you look at the heavens... And you see the heavens, and you, and you see the planets, and you see those, those big bodies orbiting the sun. 
And you, you may look at the gravitational pull and assume that that is what's putting everything in place, but I tell you that what's holding the planets in space right now is Jesus Christ. And he says if you were to look at the, on the microscopic level of the atoms in your body and those, those bonds that form on the molecular level, those cells that form together, that hold your body together, you may say that it's molecular structure, you may say that it's atoms, but I tell you that every atomic structure is held together by Jesus Christ. It is the power of his word that holds all things. That means that if God were to stop Upholding everything by the word of his power, everything in here would implode. You wouldn't be able to breathe this morning. The sun would have stopped giving off light. The earth would have stopped orbiting the sun. The, the waves would have stopped coming to the ocean. Everything would have ceased to exist. Everything we have, everything we are, owes itself to the power of God sustaining all creation. That means God in Christ continually sustains His creation, preventing it from falling into chaos and disintegrating. That's amazing to me. I think we just take it for granted that God just spoke and now He's back. But no, even now, everything we have, He is upholding everything by the word of His power. So it's fashioned by the word of God, sustained by the power of God. Third, creation is evidence of the goodness of God. Creation is evidence of of the goodness of God. There are so many good things in creation. Everything about it is good. And in fact, the goodness of creation reveals God's plans for how He's going to restore all things later. So if you, if you look on the back of your notes, I included this, this other picture here uh, on the back. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. But the first two chapters of the Bible and the last two chapters of the, of the Bible serve as bookends. Right? So what happens in the first two chapters of the Bible? You have God in His eternal glory and creation being good. And what do you have in the last two chapters of the Bible? You have creation being restored and complete and perfect. And God is with His people in eternal glory. What do you have in the third chapter of the Bible? The fall. Creation falls and it is, it is marred by sin and evil and the curse and death and Satan. What do you have in the third to the last chapter of the Bible? Revelation chapter 20. You have the judgment on sin. You have the judgment on Satan and death and evil. And it is all thrown into the lake of fire. In the Old Testament, you have God's people represented in Adam and represented in Israel, God's people, ultimately in Abraham and in David. And then you have Christ redeeming all things so that in the New Testament, God's people is not Israel, but it is the church who are now in, not in Adam, but in the second Adam, the better Adam in Christ. Not in David, but the, the better David, the better king, the better shepherd, Christ. All of these people are in Christ. So this is the picture of redemptive history. And so creation in the beginning shows us what creation will look like in the end. That means that creation is not going to be done away with in the end times. Heaven is not going to be just some random place in the clouds. God is going to restore all things here and everything is going to be restored to its rightful place so that the heavens and the earth will be restored. This is, in, this is crucially important to understand how the story ends. You've got to know how it is in the beginning. And so when we, we read Psalm 104 and we saw the goodness of creation, we're not going to read the whole thing again, but man, I, I had to stop and think about, you just thought about how good creation is and how everything works properly. 
Psalm 104 verse 5. He set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. The earth's not just going to crumble away because God put it on a sure foundation. He raises up mountains, the valleys sink down at the places that he appointed them. Verse 10 says he makes springs gush forth in valleys. He gives drink to every beast of the field. Animals don't have to worry about how to survive because God supplies water for them. He gives them the sky for the birds to have a place to fly. He causes grass to grow for the livestock. He gives plants for man to cultivate, plants for us to eat. He gives us the ability to grow gardens and to have food. He brings wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, bread to strengthen man's heart. Have you just thought about the fact that when you break a bone or when you get sick, God gave you food to eat so that your body would have what it needs to make your body right again? I was talking uh, earlier about Thomas when he broke his arm. And uh, he's five years old, six years old, I think. How old's Thomas? Six and his arm broke in two different places, and God made our bodies so that they don't have nerves in our bones so that we don't continue to feel the pain. And the bones mend themselves, not in six years, not in six months, but in six weeks he's playing again. Your bones mend back together. God made our bodies to do that, and he gave us food to eat so that our bodies would mend themselves. He gave us white blood cells to fight off bacteria and disease. Verse 16, the trees of the Lord are watered abundantly so that birds can build their nests. High mountains were made for the wild goats. Rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He makes the moon to mark seasons, the sun to know its time for its setting. He makes darkness and night. He makes the sun rise. He makes the moon come out to give light in the nighttime. He gives all of these good things. He gives the, the ocean for, for sperm whales to play. Great white sharks just go and play in the ocean. He gives them a place to swim. He says all of these things look to God and to give them food in their due season. All of these things demonstrate the goodness of God. And Psalm 104 concludes with the fact that we should bless the Lord. Oh my soul, praise the Lord. I sat down with Jenny last night and I said, Jenny, I need your help on my sermon. I need you to help me. Think about all of the good things that you're glad that exist in creation. That you would be sad if it just didn't exist. And so some of these are mine, some of these are Jenny's. You can, you can decide which ones are which. There's a lot of them. I just thought about all the ways we could just praise God for. This would be a good, good thing for your family to do at the dinner table tonight. Or when you go out to lunch. And say, hey, while we're sitting at lunch, everybody name five things in creation that you're just glad that God made them. Because it just shows how good he is. The first thing Jenny said, praise him for marriage. God made marriage. That was his idea, right? Plays, and she, flowers, that was hers too, right? Bacon and coffee. I don't even like coffee, but I love the smell. That mingled smell in the morning of bacon and coffee that fills the house. And it's just right. It's just good. And then God gave me the sense of smell to even enjoy bacon. Jenny said, whales thought about whales he didn't have to do that how cool are whales children sometimes right no really they're great babies mountains rain I mean how many of you woke up this morning and considered the rain a blessing or did you just say man why do we have stupid rain today I don't even want to go to church because it's raining <laughs> 
No, he gave us rain to make our crops grow so we could have food to eat. That's good, right? Gives us rain. Oceans. And with oceans, the beach. And vacations. And suntans. For some of you. Y'all, Mount Everest was his idea. The Grand Canyon was his doing. Niagara Falls, his handiwork. The Redwood Forest, the Rocky Mountains, the Himalayas, everything. The Brazilian rainforest, all God. All his doing. He did it by the word of his power. Stars. Tigers. That was Jenny's. She said, if I could be any animal, I'd be a tiger. Tigers. Electricity. In its right place. We love our cell phones. We love our lights. God gave electricity. Ocean waves. Radio waves. Microwaves. Love. God created love. He is love. It's His nature. He made it. He made us capable of love. He's not just the maker of visible things. He's the maker of invisible things. You can't see love that's there and mm, God made it taste and you put love and taste together what do you get chocolate made chocolate I had fun with this can you tell he made warm fire so you could sit in, in the cold winter nights and sit by a fireplace and roast marshmallows that was God he made that because he's good snow for sledding and snowmen and snowball fights gravity We'd be floating all around the place if he didn't make gravity to hold us here. Epidurals. Sports. Seasons. I love fall, right? When the leaves turn and then winter comes and then bam, spring comes. And here we are in springtime and there's new life and the trees are booming. Those were, that was God's idea. Ladybugs. That was Jenny's. You ever thought, why do ladybugs exist? What's the point? They're just cool, right? They're little and cute. Now, I don't know why Noah let two roaches on the ark. I'd love to ask him that question later. Like, why do those exist too? But we have these bugs. We have ladybugs. We have birds that fly in the sky. Birds and bees and birds and the bees, right? God made all that stuff. Let the hearer understand. Trees that provide oxygen and tree houses and toilet paper all made by God. Cotton. The fabric of our lives. Jenny was like, people will think that's funny. Okay, apparently there's a commercial. Music. God made music. God made the ability to play instruments and for harmonies to come together and for, for sound waves and waves to come together and, and all of those tones to make beautiful music. He made our brains, our eyes to see, our brains to think. Water for showers and hot tubs in the ocean and drink to satisfy thirst Pizza in our mouths to eat pizza. Our mouths to communicate, to sing, to laugh. All God's idea to shout, to eat, to kiss, and to praise Him for every good thing that He has graciously given us. The goodness of creation shows us the goodness of the Creator. And so we've seen the nature of creation. Let's go to the nature of the Creator now. Because creation doesn't just tell us about creation. It's meant to tell us about the Creator. Now, I've said this already. Genesis does not seek to answer every question we have about God. And Genesis does not tell us how God existed or when He created the world. 
We may have some old earth people in here, young earth people. You may believe in six literal days. You may believe there's an old earth and it's, it's a gap theory. doesn't matter. That's not what the Bible really seeks to answer. We can make arguments either way. What the scripture ultimately seeks to answer is to show us what God is like. What do we know about God? We see from here in scripture that God is the supreme creator. He's the creator. The supreme creator. Creation is a demonstration of the sovereignty of God. God had no beginning, but the universe did. And so the greatness of God is shown in him only having to say, let there be, and there was. Nothing compelled him to create because there was nothing or no one to compel him. Why would he need anyone to, or see any need? There wasn't anything to need. There wasn't anything to tell him to create. He, well, he did not create because he was lonely. There was something within himself that was lonely. His sovereignty in creation means his absolute freedom. These are qualities that are beyond our comprehension because we can never experience it for ourselves. God had no need. He does not need us. He does not need creation. But he created out of the overflow of his abundance and his goodness. Here's the deal. If God wanted to create a new color, he could. You and I can't do it. Can't create a new color. We're not creators. We, we, we mimic him, but we can't create anything out of nothing. So what does that mean? If God is the supreme creator, this is important. It means that he is distinct from his creation. This is important later as we go through the story of the Bible and we understand who God is. God is distinct from his creation. God is not part of nature. This is where the Hindus, other Eastern religions, they see God as being in nature or nature being God itself. God is not part of nature. The fancy word for this is transcendence. He transcends. It's like if uh, I have a, there's an iPad right here. Steve Jobs made this iPad. But Steve Jobs is not in the iPad making all the little things work, making sure all the apps work right. Okay? He's outside of the iPad. He transcends the iPad. Person who makes the computer, he's not in the computer making it. He's outside of the computer. Same way, when God created the world, he is not in the world or part of the world. He transcends the world. When J.K. Rowling wrote the book about Harry Potter, she's not in the book. She's not part of the book. Now, this gets fun when you get to the incarnation where God himself, outside of the story, writes himself into the story. That's another story. We're getting there. Hmm. God is distinct from his creation. He's the supreme creator. That means that he has power to create. He has power to create something out of nothing. Ex nihilo. Something out of nothing. God made everything. Everything you see, he made. He has power to create. But he also does something else here in Genesis 1. He not only has power to create, he has the authority, the authority to evaluate. And what does he say about everything he made? Everything God made was good. Only God can declare something to be good. It was good because God declared it to be so. You know what that means? Even in Genesis chapter 3, that, that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that tree wasn't bad. That tree wasn't evil. It was good. God made it good. So if God is the supreme creator, here's something else we know about God. If he's the creator, he's also the sovereign king. He's the supreme creator, but because he's the creator, he's also the sovereign king. 
This is the main idea in the first chapter of the book that we're studying, in Bruno's book. It is the first and foremost foundational truth of biblical theology that God created a kingdom and He is the King. Graham Goldsworthy said this in his book, In the universe that God made for His people, God rules over His people in continual and loving self-commitment to the whole creation. This is the kingdom of God. Everything you see, everything God made, it is His kingdom. And he's the king. And so here's the deal. With a, God, with, a, with a sovereign king, the God who creates is also the God who rules. The God who creates is the God who rules. And that means when you think of a king, kings do not have to go, get up off their throne to get things done. They merely speak. And other people get it done for them. They speak and things happen. Which means God's word carries great authority. His word carries great authority. When he speaks, things happen. Let there be light. You got it. Let there be mountains. Done. Let there be the ocean. You come this far and then stop right there. Got it. That's authority. Incredible authority. This is the king that we're talking about. He's the, he's the supreme creator. He's the sovereign king. And because he has created all things, that means that he is the righteous judge. Psalm 50 verse 6 says, The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. That means if God's creator and he's the king, that means that everyone in creation is accountable to him. Everyone. That's why every knee will bow and every tongue will confess in heaven and on earth that Jesus is Lord of all the earth because God is sovereign. He's the king. He is supreme. And he's the judge. That means the way we live our life, the creature is accountable to the creator. And so when we get to the fall, everything you see in man's rebellion is a rebellion against God and his authority. You look at any, 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 any fault of man, anywhere where man has fallen, any deviation from righteousness, it all has to do with running away from God as creator and king and judge. I don't want him to be my authority. So what are the implications? We got implications about God, and then we have some implications about us. If God is the supreme creator, if he is the creator, that means that he is infinitely powerful. Right? He is infinitely powerful. If God's the creator, I want you to think about this. Just, just, this, I had to stop and meditate on this. This is just good for your quiet time with the Lord. I want you to think about everything in existence. From all the galaxies to the mountains to the smallest atom, everything that works right, everything that's working, everything you know, think about this, that that God who made that, think about that kind of power, and now think about the audacity to stand against that God and rebel against Him. This is not something to tread lightly on, right? This is not something just to say, oh yeah, God's our maker, our creator. No, if he really made all this stuff, how crazy is it to rebel and sin against him? Knowing his 
His, his, him being creator, that, that leads to holiness, right? I want to be holy because I don't want to offend this holy God who made all things. And here's the deal. If he's infinitely powerful, this is where secularists have a really hard time with Christianity. They have a hard time with miracles. But here's the deal. If God is infinitely powerful, that means supernatural miracles are possible. Even the resurrection. The reason atheists and secularists say Christianity can't be true is because they say that people can't rise from the dead. It's impossible for people. It's not natural. Once you're dead, you're dead. There's no way for someone to rise from the dead because they believe that there's no such thing as supernatural miracles. Everything's in the natural. And if it can't be explained by nature, if it can't be explained by science, then, then it can't possibly happen. And so when someone like Richard Dawkins says that it's not possible for someone to rise from the dead, that's why it's absurd that Jesus rose from the dead, because it's not possible. That's why we say, yeah, it's kind of a big deal when someone rises from the dead, right? We know it's not possible unless someone is raised from the dead. And there was this guy who was raised from the dead. Jesus wasn't just the only one who rose from the dead. There were other people who were raised from the dead when God raised those people from the dead too, right? So it's a big deal when people are raised from the dead. And the reason people can be raised from the dead is because God's not bound by natural law because he transcends all those things. He's the creator. He has power to create. Surely he can create life again and raise people from the dead. Does that make sense? That means if God's creator, he's got power, that means miracles are possible. That's why Jesus can walk on water and make blind eyes open up and see again. And lame people can walk and dead people come out of tombs because he's the creator and he's powerful. Also, the implication is if God's the creator, he doesn't need anything from us. Acts chapter 17 says this, when Paul went to Athens and he preached to the Athenians, here's what he told them. He said, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God doesn't need you. And we might need to get over ourselves and remember God doesn't need me today. This church is not going to implode if I die. God's good. He's got it covered. He doesn't need me to make him a sandwich. right? He doesn't need me to serve him. He doesn't need me to give him anything that would complete him. So if God is creator, he has infinite power. And here's the deal. If God is the sovereign king, then he deserves unwavering loyalty. If he's the king of his creation, he deserves unwavering loyalty. And here's the deal. If God is, if God is king... And he's overseeing this whole thing. And if this little chart on the back of your notes is true, if God really has a plan for all creation, if he's got a purpose, then that means that he does have a special purpose for his creation. He's working all things together for our good, his glory. That means creation has a purpose. There's a purpose in everything that is made. It doesn't just exist for nothing. We are not just the... The result of random molecules coming together in some big explosion. It didn't just happen by accident. God has a special purpose for his creation. And this is important too. God has a specific plan for redemptive history. God's working to an end. History is working to an end. A glorious, God-glorifying 
Christ-exalting end. The implication for that is that you may have heard the, the phrase, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history, right? And there's this, there's this mentality in, in our society, and this is what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery, believing that what's newest is best. So anything that's old and is, is, is not as good as what's new. It's the idea that technology is progressing and, and science is progressing and that we're on this upward slope, everything's going up. That's kind of how people view the world right now. Everything's improving. We have technology can fix any problem. Science can answer any question. And I, I love science and technology, but it's not the answer to all things, right? If there's this view that everything's going up, then you have to deal with things like World War II, right? This is where people had a hard time dealing with. They thought in the 1920s, man, everything's great, everything's good, then Great Depression hits, World War II, now what? Maybe history's not getting better. Maybe we're not as good as we thought we were. And so history may be doing this, but what we do know is that it's moving to a glorious end. So we end here with the implications for us. As we lay the foundations of biblical theology, we lay the foundation of the story, what are the implications for us? The implication for us is if God's creation displays the glory of God, that means you and I are meant to know the glory of God. We are meant to know God. We're meant to know Him and we're meant to see His glory. The reason God created us is so that we would praise Him for His power and His grace and His mercy. We would see creation and say, whoa, God, you're incredible. This is what Habakkuk 2 verse 14 says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's the plan for humanity. That the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. This is the scandal of Romans chapter 1, right? It shows the depth of our sin when Romans 1 says this about the Creator. Romans 1 verses 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. How has He shown it? For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and His divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that man is without excuse. And what does man do? He exchanges the glory of the immortal God for images of animals and birds and mankind. And worships false idols. What Romans 1 says is that if you, if you look at creation, you should be able to see the, the power and the divine nature of God. Only a powerful God could make what is here. And so what do we want to do? If this is true, we want the knowledge of the glory of the Lord to fill the earth. That means that we should want to share this knowledge with others. We want to share this knowledge with others. We want to make this known that God has made all things. He's the creator. He's a loving God. We want to share this knowledge with others. That's local. Not just a local church. We're a global church, right? Global. So we want to share this knowledge with others, but we want to spread this knowledge to the world. We want to spread it to the world. We want to share it with others. We want to spread this knowledge to the world. So that the earth, the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. 
Another implication. We're almost done here. The glory of creation should lead us to worship the creator. We're not just meant to know God, but we were meant to worship God. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to know God, to glorify God, and to enjoy Him forever. That's your purpose in life. The purpose of your life. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. This is why St. Augustine said, God, our hearts are restless until they rest in You. Until your heart rests in God, until you know God and treasure God and worship Him, your, your life is going to be futile. You're not going to find that, 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 that sense of joy. You're not going to know it. And so here's what we should do. We should recognize the good things that God has provided for us and receive them with thanksgiving. You should give thanks. This is why at the, at the table today at lunch, you should... Ask your children, ask your family, what's something that God's made today that we can give thanks for? If we understand that God is creator and that we as creatures are dependent for every good thing from Him, then we should be extremely grateful and thankful. 1 Timothy 4, verses 4 and 5 says this, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. This is why we say a blessing before meals, right? It's not just superstition. We're not just saying words and mumbling stuff so that we did our duty and everybody thinks we're spiritual because we thank God for food. No, we say a blessing before we, we eat a meal because we recognize God is creator. We're creature. We are all utterly dependent upon him to, to provide every need for us. And so we want to give thanks to him because he has given us good things. So when you pray for your food today, shake yourself out of the lethargy of just going through the motions of saying a blessing. And say, no God, really, thank you for today. Thank you for this food you've provided. Quickly, the word of God that created the world is the same word we must believe today to save us. It is God's word that saves. It's the word of Christ that transforms heart. The same word that created the world is the same word that creates life in people's dead hearts. And finally, as God Almighty, if we recognize that God is Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth and everything in them, what does that mean for us? It means that He will provide everything we need. And he will work all things for our good. Even adversity. Even suffering. God can work for good purposes. How do you know this? How do we know if God's the maker of heaven and earth, if, he's, if he is all these things, how do we know this? How do we know that he's going to work for our good? We know that he can do it. He can do this because he's almighty God. He can provide for your needs. He can work things for your good because he's almighty God. He can do it. The question is, will he? He can do it because he's almighty God, but we know he will do this because he is a faithful father. And at this point, this sermon's not really a sermon yet because it's missing one key person. Jesus, right? 
And so I've made, a, I've made a jump. I've made an assertion that's not really true yet. God is Father. The only reason today, and this is where the gospel's good news, y'all. The only reason that the Creator and the King is your Father is because Christ the Son, God the Son, came to make reconciliation so that you and I could be adopted into the family of God. The Creator entered into His creation. Now I know we may be getting ahead of ourselves in this big story by talking about Jesus, but this... The truth is, this isn't even a Christian sermon until we talk about Christ. And everything in Scripture points to His work. Everything in the work of creation points to Christ. And so, let me quickly remind you, put your notes away and just receive this with joy today. That John 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. So now the Word is not just this impersonal force. It is a transcendent God person. It is God in the flesh. All things were made through Him, through Christ. And without Him was not anything made that was made. And in Him, in Christ, was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so here we go. In the book of Genesis, what do you have? You have the work of creation. The Word goes forth in the beginning in the work of creation. And God speaks, and light enters into darkness. And what do you find in John chapter 1? Not the beginning of creation but the beginning of redemption and there is the word of God there it is a person it is Christ and light comes into the darkness not the light in the world but light in our hearts the darkness of our hearts receives the word the 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 incarnate word and Christ comes to dwell with his people and this God who created the world he is preeminent in all things he is exalted above all Colossians 1 verses 15 to 17 Jesus is the image of the invisible God the first Firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. That is by Jesus. That means in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, it was the power of Christ. Somehow, mysteriously, the, the, the living word, the second person of the Trinity, is the power through which all things were created. And it was created for him. It's for Jesus. Things in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible. Thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him and he is before all things and in him all things hold together Billy Graham had it right right because everything in you holds together because of the power of Christ and everything exists for him it is for his glory it is for his enjoyment everything's made by him it's made by him it was his creative power that made things and because of that Christ is the one who deserves eternal worship for everything he has done for us. Hear this, Revelation 4 verse 11. Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things and by your will they existed and they were created. It is Christ today who transforms your relationship from God as creator and king to God as father. He is the one that provides you intimacy with the father. He's the one that gives you access. He is the one that's redeemed you. He is the one that holds all things together. He is the one that deserves worship and praise this morning. And so we conclude with this verse from Psalm 95 verse 6. Oh come, come three rivers, let us worship and bow down. Come let us kneel before the Lord our God. Our maker. Let's pray. Father, we long to worship you. You have made us to enjoy you. To treasure you. And so, Father, I pray as we worship now 
and spirit and truth. We would recognize you as our creator, the one who has made all things. May we live with grateful and thankful hearts. May we desire to take the knowledge of the glory of the Lord to the nations. May we treasure you as our God, as our King, as our Creator, and as our Father. Thank you for Christ and His dominion over all things. Help us to trust you in the coming days in in adversity, when things get hard, and know that you're working all things together for our good. Thank you for the goodness of creation. Thank you for your goodness towards us. And I pray that your goodness would... Would, would reflect in praise out of our mouths today. In Jesus' name, amen.